welcome to the STEM Economy with your host, Matt Bender. The big day is finally here. Thursday, September 15th, 2022 will go down in the history books as the day the big Ethereum merge went down. And for most, it's just another Thursday. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Scam Economy. I am your host, Matt Binder. And today's episode perfectly lines up with the day of the big Ethereum merge. Of course, of course, you know, that is the day that Ethereum moves from a proof-of-work network to a proof-of-stake one. And if all of this is gibberish to you, do not fret. Because on this episode of the show, we will break down exactly why crypto heads are popping off parties, celebrations, quiet get-togethers alone in front of their computer screen, maybe Zooming with one or two other people, are happening all over the globe, and we will have you covered. You will walk away from this episode completely knowledgeable, well, not fully confused about what just went down today and why the crypto world is going goo-goo-gaga for the brand spanking new version of Ethereum. And of course, it wouldn't be scam economy without the show breaking down exactly who's getting rich off of all this. Spoiler alert, it's not you. But before we do all that, listeners and viewers of Scam Economy can celebrate the Ethereum merge in their very own way by, of course, going to patreon.com slash mattbinder and becoming a paying subscriber to this show. You can also support this show by going to youtube.com slash mattbinder and dropping a super chat if you're watching the live premiere version of this show or dropping a super thanks on the replay. You can also go to twitch.tv slash mattbinder and follow the Twitch channel there. And if you're an Amazon Prime subscriber, connect your Amazon Prime account to your Twitch account and give Scam Economy your monthly Twitch Prime subscription. Go to scameconomy.com for all the links to the audio version of this show. Be sure to leave a review for Scam Economy at your favorite podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And with all that said, it is a big day in the crypto world. Uh, literally like half a decade or so in the making here and the stars aligned perfectly for it to all go down on the day this show drops its brand new episode. And joining me now to celebrate the fact that the merge is here. The Ethereum merge day has arrived and joining me on this very, very special day co-host of the Crypto Critics Corner podcast and head of research at the crypto outlet Protos, Bennett Tomlin. Welcome back to Scam Economy. Glad to be here. 
Now, Bennett, on this on this fantastic, joyous occasion, um, I'm so happy for you to be able to join us and basically, quite frankly, walk me through this, uh, and everyone listening, uh, walk us through this confusing mess that is uh, the merge, Ethereum 2.0, uh, proof of stake, and all the... Uh, I don't know, uh, tomfoolery that will come out of this. And of course, um, why the crypto world is sort of so jubilant on this day and, you know, what they sort of think will come out of this. A lot to talk about, basically. But first, um, you know, you wrote this great piece uh, for Protos over at Protos, P-R-O-T-O-S dot com that basically, frankly, explains everything anyone would need to know about the merge and you know we're just a a a few hours uh when this airs a few hours right now we're actually a few hours before the merge actually occurs um when this drops we'll just be a few hours removed from the merge happening so who knows how it goes quite yet but none of that really matters because at the end of the day they'll fix the kinks or whatever and we'll be left with this what is Ethereum 2.0 and this merge that is uh, happening? So um, it's not Ethereum 2.0 anymore. It's right. not, they're not calling it that anymore. But to understand, back in 2017, Ethereum was much newer at this point, having only existed for a couple of years. Uh, Vitalik Buterin, who's one of the founders of Ethereum, went on stage at Beyond Block Taipei and started laying out his vision for what the next version of Ethereum would look like that he called Ethereum 2.0. And there were two major pieces to it at this point. One was that they were going to transition from their existing proof-of-work consensus to a proof-of-stake consensus. And the other part is that they were going to create something called sharding. So the consensus change, uh, Ethereum, for the next few hours, much like Bitcoin, currently uses a whole bunch of computational effort to secure the network, Uh, primarily on GPUs instead of like the special machines like Bitcoin uses. But still, all around the world right now, tons of computers are doing a whole bunch of largely pointless operations in hopes of getting some ether. In a few hours, that will change, and the system will instead be governed by proof of stake, wherein people who currently have Ethereum can choose to lock it up and run a node that is doing the process of validating and proposing blocks, and they'll be eligible for the rewards from the blockchain. So that's the consensus change. The other part that was described at that point was sharding, which is where the Ethereum blockchain was going to become a whole bunch of different blockchains, each that would be kind of on its own and kind of connected to the others, and that by building Ethereum in this way, they would be able to do vastly more transactions. Now the vision has shifted, and the only thing that's happening for the merge here, the only change is the shift in consensus from the proof of work algorithm to the proof of stake algorithm. I got to say, um, they probably could have come up with a better name than sharding. <laughs> I mean, it took me a second to realize you were saying sharding with a D and not, you know, the thing that, not the uh, other one. you know, when, when, 
when you reach a certain age, uh, you know, sometimes you'll accidentally do something and uh, you know, that's what it's called um, with a T, though. Um, so they probably could have come up with a better name. But uh... <laughs> naming, naming and describing things is not one of crypto specialties. If you're looking for that, look elsewhere. <laughs> Right. Right. Yes. Um, so the more important thing, though, I think, is the the explanation you just gave of proof of work versus proof of stake. Um, you know, I, I, let me just make sure uh, I understand this for everybody. You know, I, I, I know what the difference is, but it is sort of confusing when you first explain this to someone. So basically, um, all these, uh, you know, all these processing power, you know, these high processing powered computers were previously doing all these computations that would mine for Ethereum, much in the same way Bitcoin mining works. Now, basically, um, the process that adds these blocks to the blockchain will be done by uh, people who stake large quantities of Ether on the Ethereum network. Yes, that's exactly right. And staking is sort of like having a, a savings account and leaving your your crypto in, uh, you know, on the Ethereum network. Right now, it's more like a certificate of deposit because you can't withdraw from it. A savings account you can withdraw from right now. Right now, anyone who is staking Ethereum cannot withdraw until some amorphous point in the future when they do another hard fork to add in the ability for people to withdraw. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Hold on a minute. All right. I, I, I think I might have missed this over my time uh, looking into crypto. Now, this is not the case with staking every crypto, is it? No, no. But okay. th there's often like a process, like a certain number of days you might need to wait from when you send the command to say, I no longer want to stake until you have your coins. Whereas for Ethereum right now, there's just no way to send the command. There's no way to say, I no longer want to stake and I want my coins back. All right. This is this is a incredible uh factor here when we get to uh in a little bit basically um on this new uh, ethereum network that will exist post merge just how much ether you'll need to stake to actually um benefit from this change and uh we will find out exactly how much that is and basically from what you're telling me that amount uh, will be untouchable for the time being at the very least, which is quite shocking. But we'll get there in a second because I don't want to jump ahead. So, so this merge that's happening in a few hours from when we're talking and will have ex happened in a, a few hours before most people listen to this, um, they're basically doing the technical uh, things that need to be done to basically swap from uh, one network to another. Now, what happens to all the Ether that's Ethereum 1.0 right now? Um, what happens to all that Ether um, on the current or former Ethereum blockchain um, that, you know, that what happens to it after the merge? Well, it it is then Ethereum on the proof of stake chain. Like the idea is the state is continuous between them. One block, it is running on proof of work. It hits the specified cutoff amount and the next block should be created by the proof of stake validators. And all of your Ethereum that you had should still be part of that same continuous chain of blocks. Now, 
there is also another group who has announced their intention to, at that decision point, fork off and create a new chain called uh, ETH Proof of Work. And that is a disaster. Every part about it is bad. Their white paper has seven pages that say this page intentionally left blank, two cover pages and nothing else. Um, like, it, it's a joke of a project. And that will also exist at that same time and will contain, like, at the time they split, they will have equivalent state. Same addresses, same balances, same everything. And from that point on, they'll start to diverge. And so it will likely be possible for people with Ethereum wallets to claim some of those assets on the other chain as well. Wow. Okay. So, and that, that other blockchain is, that's the one that the current Ethereum miners are uh, wanting to run so they could continue their proof of work? Or is this something separate from that? Some of them have announced their intention to mine that chain. I expect that it is likely a dead project over a week from now, two weeks from now, whatever, and that any of the miners who are still trying to get out whatever marginal value they can before it depreciates will move over to Ethereum Classic, which was another fork of Ethereum that happened several years ago when the DAO, the Decentralized Autonomous Organization, was hacked. I think most of them will move there because this fork is kind of doomed. Like, uh, because so much of DeFi is dependent on stablecoins at this point, as and all of the major stablecoin issuers, Circle, Paxos, Tether, have all said that they intend to follow the proof of stake chain. Their tokens will become valueless in the first couple blocks on the new chain. When they do, any protocol that depends on those tokens is also going to break. So MakerDAO, Uniswap, all these different things are going to start breaking. Then any of the protocols that are still on that chain that depend on any of those protocols are also going to break. And so like whatever value is left six blocks in when the miners have extracted whatever they can from the people foolish enough to think it's going to work after that point, once they've extracted that first bit of value as all those things approach zero and they're the ones making the arbitrage trades until it hits zero after that, I think the project will be pretty quickly abandoned and I don't think we'll see very much hash rate on it a month from now. If it, if it has more than like, two percent of what ethereum has today i would be surprised oh, this is really simple stuff really straightforward <laughs> i mean it's it's amazing every time you know I, I we were talking a little bit before we started recording here um you know every time uh i start to under really understand a lot of this the, the, the these aspects of crypto that are again purposefully um uh, you know convoluted and confusing um i there's a new pinnacle of convol convoluted and confusing and i think i think this merge might might do it at least for now uh you know years in the making to get this complicated um let me let me uh ask you this now I've seen before that, um, you know, sometimes and there's a lot of assets that live on Ethereum, unlike Bitcoin, where the Bitcoin blockchain is for Bitcoin uh, tokens um, on the Ethereum blockchain. There are a lot of various assets that aren't necessarily cryptocurrency tokens, for example, NFTs. Um, and I've seen previously where 
um, NFT projects issued like new NFTs, like NF, the, like the NFT Project 2.0, thus saying like like the old NFT 1.0 assets are worthless. And however, people say, "Hey, I just got." basically two assets for the price of one because they usually give the person who owns the 1.0 asset the 2.01 as well so they try to keep it going on both versions is that something that can happen with this merge like will like say i own some ether right now when this merge happens will i have old ether and new ether on two separate blockchains you'll likely have Ether on like the proof of stake blockchain and then ETHPOW or whatever they end up calling it on the other blockchain. And this is true for any asset you have. So all the NFTs, all the tokens, everything is duplicated to the other state um, and will exist there. Like they will exist as part of that blockchain. But like for something, for like an NFT project where possession of the nft confers some kind of benefit right even if it's just joining a discord or some of the ones that let you go to certain events or whatever the human beings behind that organizing and those decisions will likely say you need to have one of these nfts on this chain or on this chain and so because of that i think it is unlikely that there will be a lot of demand for the nfts on the other chain and this is I was talking about some of the other assets, which are going to very quickly crash in price. But like some of those, even while they're quickly crashing in price, will still have trades occurring because like uh, Uniswap and other DEXs use this structure called an automated market maker. And so as it's approaching that, as people are making the trades, it is doing that automated. NFTs are much more often a, a more manual process wherein someone is listing the asset and individuals are coming in and giving bids or offers on that specific asset. And so when you are on what's I think is going to effectively be a ghost chain with a duplicate asset with no benefits, I think it's going to be hard to find people interested in bidding for that. And so a whole bunch of people will have these assets, but that doesn't mean they're going to have anyone who's going to want to take them from them. Right. There's there's no reason to think they're going to be valuable. Right. Right. But ostensibly, like, say I'm someone who got into uh, one such NFT project that did what I said, or they released a version mm-hmm. two, is CryptoPunks. So yeah. ostensibly, if I got into CryptoPunks early and have both a version one CryptoPunk and a version two CryptoPunk, after the merge, I will have CryptoPunk version one, Ethereum network one, CryptoPunk version one, Ethereum network two. CryptoPunk version 2, Ethereum Network 1, and CryptoPunk version 2, Ethereum Network 2. Correct. Yeah. (laughs) Everything gets duplicated. I want people to understand that this this thing, this merge that Bennett is telling us about right now, this is something that (laughs) the crypto world is celebrating right now that they think it's going to make everything so grand, so amazing. They've been looking forward to this for years. It's been an on, it's been, a, it's been like a running joke where like the merge just kept getting pushed back. Uh, not even just year after year. Like I feel like uh, almost like quarter after quarter, like every uh, couple of months it'd be pushed back another couple of months. And then before you know it, we're like five years down the line. 
Yeah, yeah, it's been pushed back from, like, originally supposed to be launching in 2018 until September 14th or 15th, because it'll probably be after midnight UTC, is when we're finally going to get it in 2022. So it's been half a decade, basically. Right. And now, you know, so let's let's get into this because you know I I've, I had mentioned you know I started uh, talking with you about the joyous celebrations we're having of course about this and how the crypto world is is parting it up and I guarantee there will be uh, photos and videos from like weirdo parties at one a.m. Uh, from like crypto nerds in uh, you know the financial district in New York and Silicon Valley, uh, you know, <laughs> parting it up about this stuff. Um, but you know, w- why is it that they think this is going to be such a big deal? Well, some think it is important to move away from proof of work because they believe that proof of work has heavy environmental costs. Is that in the process of using all this energy and mining all these cryptocurrencies, that that process is inherently wasteful and is something they should change away from. And this this has been like a belief in the Ethereum community for quite a few years. Like even early on in Ethereum's history, there was people discussing making that change for that reason. Um, It used to be a like the. The environmental costs used to be a thing that Bitcoiners talked about, like Hal Finney, one of the first like real prominent Bitcoiners. One of the first things he ever tweeted about Bitcoin is that he wanted to figure out a way to reduce the environmental impact of it. But now Bitcoiners can't talk about that because they'll be exiled from their community, whereas Ethereum seemed to want to still move towards that. The other aspect is uh, the process of getting the block rewards Instead of the block rewards going to the miners who are spending dollars, currency, whatever, to get energy to mine Ether, it instead goes to the largest holders of Ethereum. So for individuals who are large holders of Ethereum, they now gain the ability to profit directly from the block rewards of the blockchain, rather than those going to these miners who are often very distinct parties from like the chain users and the holders of the token. And so for individuals with a lot of Ether, this transition really gives them the opportunity to more directly profit from just the continued operation of the chain itself. And so that was another part of it. The The final part is, I think, largely like the environmental cost was a big one. The other one is there. Well, let's actually let's actually yeah. get into the environmental stuff, because that that is usually what I say. And, you know, I, um. Again, I, I know the Ethereum community. I've done an episode about this, like like you know how they the, the difference between like you know the the Bitcoin sort of communities and the Ethereum communities. Whereas in my experience, and and you can you can uh, you know uh, tell me if you agree disagree. You know the Bitcoin community is still very much that like old ideological libertarian bent. Um, thought process behind that. Yes, there are some, uh, you know, people who are just in it to make money, but even those people tend to uh, be like older finance types, which more stuffy type libertarian people and them go hand in hand sometimes. Um, whereas Ethereum Network, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say um, more socially aware 
Um, but, uh, you know, they do seem to be more socially aware, even if it's just for the purpose of, uh, you know, of um, the, that, that uh, what they put out there. Like, I'm not saying you have uh, a, a blockchain network in Ethereum that's full of progressives and leftists, but they do seem to be uh, more conscious of how these sort of social issues look and paint the picture of crypto to a larger audience. Absolutely. And both groups are very deeply influenced by libertarianism. There's a bit of a disconnect between like the more Austrian economics, hard money stuff that has really embedded itself in the Bitcoin community and more of like the Glen Whale radical markets kind of conception that's really embedded itself in the Ethereum world. Um, but I think you are absolutely right that Ethereum as a community largely does a better job of trying to make themselves seem within the generally accepted bounds of society. Bitcoiners seem much less interested in people thinking they're members of society. Um, and like, and we were talking about the energy use here, and that is like potentially in the meta, in the political game here. There are Bitcoiners who have accused Ethereum of playing like a very calculated game here and that they've been waiting for this moment when things are like prominent enough and politicized enough to make this transition to prove that it's possible for an existing major proof of work blockchain to transition to proof of stake so that they can now combine it with a bunch of political pressure surrounding Bitcoin's energy usage and environmental uh, costs and things like that. And so possibly the transition here helps them make a more striking comparison between themselves and Bitcoin, both to investors broadly, but also perhaps to regulators, lawmakers and other individuals who can affect the larger meta battle between these tribes. Right. And, and it's, you know, I think a, a great example is not only is Bitcoin, uh, you know, Maxi's seemingly um, just like not careful about how um, Bitcoin is portrayed in the public eye. It seems like they are uh, they downright like agitate against even like any sort of uh, uh, good press in terms of like. There have been requests for Bitcoin to, um, you know, move over to what would be uh, the more environmentally friendly proof of stake over their current proof of work. And not only do they like knock against it, but like you said earlier, like the ones who did maybe bring up environmental issues before, they've now stopped bringing it up. I would even go a step further and say not only do they not bring up the environmental issues with Bitcoin, they now claim that those environmental negatives are actually in some weird twisted way actually a positive for the environment they do they do <laughs> um i don't think bitcoin could have at, at least at any point in the last several years have conceivably switched to proof of stake the community was too deeply against it and there is 
like in terms of distributing your token, which is at least part of what these algorithms are supposed to be for, there is an argument that proof of work is better because it forces people to spend real assets in the form of actual currencies that people use to buy things in the real world in order to acquire the thing. Whereas with Ethereum, it's all entirely self-referential. In order to acquire more Ethereum, you have Ethereum. And once you have enough Ethereum, you keep acquiring more Ethereum. And so like at least early on in these blockchains histories, there you can kind of construct an argument for why proof of work is the uh, superior choice. I'm not saying I agree with the argument, but there's at least an argument to be made there. And that argument became kind of integral to Bitcoiners conception of cryptocurrency and what it was going to look like. Um, and so even when you did see attempts to move Bitcoin to something more less energy intensive, it was still often some form of proof of work, like a Bitcoin NG forked off to a different algorithm years and stuff years ago but yeah now they try to claim that bitcoin miners and the fact that their argument is that because bitcoin mining is not particularly important we can make bitcoin miners shut off their miners when the grid needs extra energy and so Bitcoin miners will pay for energy when there's energy available. And since it's unimportant for society, we can shut it off when we don't need them. And that is basically a straightforward telling of the Bitcoin argument for why like Bitcoin is good for grid health is because no one is harmed when you tell the Bitcoin miners to stop mining. They don't take that thought through to its completion, though, for obvious reasons. Right, and and here's the thing. This is sort of why I, I I brought up the, the you know the Bitcoin mining proof of work stuff in this episode focused on Ethereum's merge and move to proof of stake, and that's because a lot of this celebrating from uh, the Ethereum community is about the environmental uh, change impact changes, and not really because of uh, proof of stake being less damaging to the environment than proof of work uh but because they think that takes away like the main critique of crypto and you know more specifically ethereum in general and what they fail to realize is that still though uh until proven otherwise which uh folks like you and me have been waiting a very long time to be proven otherwise um, until there is some real-world necessity here, some real-world benefit that we could not go on without, that would, you know, are, are we be back in the pre, you know, smartphone days, pre-internet days, until it's life-changing like that, the electricity, the uh, environmental impact that even a proof-of-stake network is going to use is wasteful. Yeah, I, I think there's like, and so several months ago when there was the massive NFT craze, you saw a bunch of companies try to announce NFT initiatives and get shouted down. And there was uh, someone who created a website which purported to show like the environmental impact of each transaction and each NFT purchase and each NFT mint and something like that. Uh, and I'm not vouching for the methodology of the website. I'm just pointing it out as an artifact that shaped the discourse during that period. Um, and so, yeah, because of that, there was often a lot of people in the replies to these companies and things like that, citing that environmental cost is the reason they wouldn't take NFTs and why they were upset that these companies were doing that kind of thing. 
And I think you're absolutely right that that was only the surface level complaint. It was, it is shocking how bad this, how wasteful this is when it's also so pointless. And so they are working on the wasteful problem and that's probably a good thing. It is a good thing that the thing is less wasteful, but I think you're absolutely right that until they clearly demonstrate the purpose of a lot of these things, most people are still not going to care. And fundamentally, regardless of proof of stake, proof of work, any of this, these constructs, these blockchains, the only time they are arguably better is when it's worth paying for censorship resistance, when you're doing things that are likely or possibly going to be censored. And so there, it's still such a poor fit for such for so many of the things that are people are trying to use it for. So because of that, no matter what you do, it still seems worse than the alternative because it is, because you're paying for this replication, you're paying for these efforts, you're paying for all these things that you don't actually need for almost any use case. And the ones who do need it are a small minority of people in unique situations, not the vast majority of people that they claim to want to spread these things to. Right. Now, before we, we, we dive deeper into the staking aspect of all this, I, I want to ask, now, is this merge to this new Ethereum network, um, is it going to uh, change uh, the, the speed of uh, transactions on Ethereum network? It will not. No. Is this merge to this new Ethereum network, is the new Ethereum network going to have solved the problem where... Um, gas free gas fees, which are like the the fees that arise when you try to transact on the network, um, and those fees rise to enormously high costs based on how many people are also partaking in transactions at that moment. Is this going to solve that problem of the of the enormous gas fees? It will not. <laughs> I just wanted to make that clear because you think. You'd think if you were going to do this, you would work on at least solving one out of two of those major issues, right? Well, and, I mean, and originally it was supposed to, like the original vision had sharding, which was supposed to be this way to get like an, an order of magnitude or a couple of order of magnitudes more transactions by shifting a lot of the data and the execution into these separate shards, right? But then that they discovered was extraordinarily complex and is no longer at least part of the near-term vision for Ethereum scaling. And so since that was removed from this thing, it's just really the transition to proof of stake. There are some plans to aid scaling in the future. Um, those are currently in the future. And are, <laughs> yeah, so th there's this thing that's supposedly coming called dank sharding. Oh my God. They really don't. They really, I will say the one you mentioned before, where uh, some of those Ethereum miners are going to fork off. Now that was that's a clever pun right there. <laughs> but the sharding thing—you think they would uh, they would come up with something better than that? And then dank sharding. Oh my god! All right, well, yeah. well, well, break it down for me, Bennett. <laughs> that that is complex, but it's basically going to involve. Right now, when we or in a few hours, when we switch over to proof of stake, the validators who are staking are the ones who will propose blocks to the network. And then other 
validators, when they see those blocks, will attest and say, yes, that was the block I saw. It's the real block. We're going to build on top of that block. They want to change that. They want to restructure Ethereum so that the validators proposing the blocks are, are different than the individuals building the blocks. And so they want a separate set of infrastructure, which are going to be even larger and more powerful computers than the validators need to be. And these are going to be the individuals who are going to take all of the various transactions, construct them together into blocks. A whole bunch of these are going to then tell the proposers, here's our block, we'll pay you this if you send our block out. And then the proposers will be able to send that block out. Dank sharding as part of this is going to try to make it by making a variety of changes, which are almost beyond me, so we're probably beyond this tonight, but tries to make it so that the regular validators, the one proposing the blocks, each only need to download a tiny part of the total data that's being transacted and used by the Ethereum blockchain. And the block builders, the big ones, the ones who are taking all these transactions and putting them together, they're the ones who have to download much more of the data. And so the task of processing the data for the validators is no longer no longer does every validator need to download all the data they download a shard of the data a portion of the data their own dank shard and then they a whole bunch of them are all downloading and overlap enough with each other that you're supposed to then be able to prove mathematically if enough of them say so that all the data is there that's supposed to be there this is Several parts of this are still uh, what the Ethereum Foundation calls uh, an active design space or an active research space, which means the implementation and the details are likely to change, which means the optimistic timelines of this coming in perhaps a year or 18 months are probably optimistic based on what we've seen from pre previous Ethereum research, especially when it's still in the conception stage. So in the future, they hope they'll be able to make changes that will allow that'll make it easier for people to validate and when they do that it'll make it possible for them to make blocks bigger basically effectively so because of that shove more stuff in the blocks and so at that point it won't become faster but it might become cheaper got it you know Maybe. i will I, I will i will say i will say i knew it was going to happen eventually it took 30 episodes of scam economy but Finally had a guest on who 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 lost me. I mean, you didn't you did get me back there at the end. And honestly, there were moments where I thought that uh, you were about to lose you. <laughs> it is it is it is complicated. Um, and like yeah, and so <sighs> Ethereum shifted from their vision of like these separate sharded blockchains to now having these rollups, which are these basically separate blockchains run by like Arbitrum and Optimism and these other sets of validators who then post a bunch of data to the main chain. So they move some of the execution out of these other chains and they post a bunch of shit on the main chain. Problem with this is now there's a bunch of shit on the main chain. So all the work now is to try to figure out how do we get rid of the shit. And so like related to dank sharding is they're, they want to change the way the data is stored to make it cheaper to store some of this data. And then they want to like make it so that no data older than a year is retained by default. So like the way a lot of like the stuff in the back end that users don't have to worry about right now is also going to change because it's no longer going to be possible for someone to like stand up a node and easily sync it from the beginning of the chain and prove it from the beginning of the chain. They'll sync like from a week ago 
and see only the block since then. And so there are also just some broader changes philosophically to Ethereum where they are getting more comfortable with people who validate, who run these nodes, who actually participate in the network, participating somewhat less, having by default access to much less of the history and much less of what's happened on the chain, which I think is likely to have unforeseen consequences, but because they're unforeseen, I can't tell you exactly how. I, I, I listen, <laughs> all, all, all everyone listening to this needs to know is that right now there are people literally popping champagne bottles over everything Bennett just said. <laughs> So let's 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 dive into this because I told people early on because um, you had floored me with the uh, that information about staking, um, where uh, people who currently stake in the Ethereum uh, with their Ether and the Ethereum network uh, cannot withdraw that. Uh, there is no mechanism to do so, um, and obviously with this move to proof of stake, in order for you to monetarily benefit from this move to proof of stake because i think a lot of people they 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 if if they're not you know uh crypto heads who are totally in this world and uh unfortunately they're i would say the vast majority of people in crypto right now are are, are not hardcore crypto people they are uh everyday you know uh i don't want to say investors just like even like just young people with uh, a couple extra bucks who wanted to to jump on the get rich quick uh, train that was there for a very little short window of time. We uh, call those community members charitably and bag holders when we're feeling less charitable. <laughs> that is that is both hilarious and very accurate. Um, so you know, I think a lot of people hear this changeover and they're thinking, oh. You know, with proof of work, the Bitcoin way and what will what is now the old Ethereum way, um, I needed to have this big expensive mining rig. And as time went on, that big expensive mining rig turned into a factory full of big expensive mining rigs. And we're talking, you know, a multi-million dollar uh, uh, hardware sitting in a large space just to mine crypto, which out of a lot of people's reach. And then they hear, oh, proof of stake. You just basically like drop, you know, hold your crypto in, you know, on the network or wherever and um, you don't touch it and you make uh, a percentage, you know, in yield back. Like you make some money. Um, and that is A, uh, from what you just said earlier, not the case in terms of making money because you apparently can't withdraw it. But uh, B... Uh, I was just came across this over the past couple of days when I was researching the merge. Uh, if you're just like some low level investor with maybe like a couple hundred, maybe even a couple thousand, maybe even like ten thousand, twenty thousand, thirty thousand dollars, thinking you're gonna stake your crypto and uh, make some money off of this, well, does Bennett have some news for you? <laughs> Well, yeah, so there's a couple things here. One, <laughs> the minimum amount to stake is 32 Ether, which right now the price of Ethereum is about $1,600. So you're looking at about 50K all in to be able to start staking. Um, and like, 
Staking is not an entirely passive process. You need to be capable of running a server that's going to be able to process the incoming blocks, validate the transactions, propose when it's supposed to, and you, there's certain um, synchrony assumptions. You need to stay online or you'll get penalized if you go offline. Uh, you also need to make sure that you're running like a minority implementation of the software and like make sure that your software is following the rules it's supposed to. Because if your software misbehaves, if your validator misbehaves, you'll get slashed and you'll start losing your ether that you have out in your wallet. Um, so yes, at the first point, it is very expensive to start staking. There have been a few ways to kind of there's been a few ways to kind of get around this. Uh, one of those is a service called Lido, which provides a way for people with less than $50,000 to get started staking. They provide their Ether to Lido. Lido partners with a bunch of staking as a service providers, gives them your Ether, and then you are entitled to your share of the staking rewards minus a fee. Um, there's some complications around Lido, which uh, one of the other writers at Protos mentioned in a couple of pieces, which is that like they created this token STETH, S-T-E-T-H, staked ETH, which you get when you deposit your ether. So you deposit one ether, you get one STETH, one STETH. One, these things have really dumb names. I'm sorry. <laughs> you get one of those and then you can do things with it. You can trade it. You can hold it. You can eventually give it back to Lido and get your coins back eventually. That's a future thing, we hope. But this token ended up being responsible partially for the blow up of Celsius, partially for the blow up of Three Arrows Capital, and has been a general problem for the cryptocurrency ecosystem as a whole. Because, as I mentioned, you're not able to withdraw if you're staking in the proof of stake version of Ethereum yet. People have deposited a lot of Ether into Lido in order to stake. This included places like Celsius that might need to give users back their Ether and places like Three Arrows Capital. Celsius realized at a certain point that uh, staked ETH started to trade at less than one Ether. Because people couldn't withdraw but needed liquidity, needed dollars, they started selling their staked Ether. This, this has repeatedly caused staked Ether to fall below. When it did this, it threatened Celsius because they had a bunch of user funds in there. And for Three Arrows Capital, it put them at risk of liquidation because they had used it as collateral for loans. Um, and so, yeah, for individuals who don't have $50,000, they can, if they want, give up their coins to someone else and hope that they get their share of the rewards by doing that. Is there a timeline like to withdraw staked Ether? Six to nine months is what I think it was. <sighs> Oh, is that uh, looking like something that's going to be uh, pushed for another half a decade? <laughs> I hope not. I think that would be extraordinarily bad. I doubt it just because there is Coinbase is staking and Coinbase doesn't want to have to explain to all of their customers, most of whom might not know what a hard fork is, why it's all stuck there. You know, so I think there's going to be a lot more pressure to get that change more quickly. But it is a little ridiculous. Right. Is 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 Lido uh, transparent to people who are staking through? Because obviously, I, you know, we could assume that if you have fifty thousand dollars to throw into staking on Ethereum, you you likely know the details uh, around not being able to withdraw. 
uh, for now and for uh, and not being able to do so for at least six to nine months at least. Um, but is Lido and any of these other um, crypto companies providing similar services? Are they being transparent with people who are staking via their service about being able to not withdraw? Yeah, yeah, I think they are. Most okay. of them in their documentation stuff will describe that kind of thing. Whether all the users fully take in and appreciate that information is a separate question, but getting users to take in and appreciate information is always a struggle. Um, let, and, let me, and let me like, ask that a little bit more specifically. Is it like on line 32, paragraph 59 in the, pro in the policy, or is it like well-established before you give your money? Like there is it's, – it's, it's quite – you know, they, they let it be known. I, I've never looked at all the steps it takes <laughs> to go through Lido and stake. So I can't say confidently. What gonna, to say. I read some of the right documentation. <laughs> we're here right now. I'm going to quickly, we got Lido.fi, very, very clever use of what I believe is uh, Finland's country code uh, domain name uh, extension. Um, Lido, let's see, liquidity for staked assets, um, supported networks, Ethereum. Stake any amount of ETH and earn daily staking rewards. Put your staked ETH to work across DeFi to compound your yield. Now, I would probably put that information right there in that paragraph, which it's not there. Uh, it does say 3.8% APR. It does say there is almost $7 billion staked. Um I, that, I I don't see any I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna it, It's in their FAQ if you look at uh how Steeth can be converted to ETH. All right, let me let me. I, I got to see this because I I would personally have it on the main page, but also I am uh, uh, not a crypto. You're uh, unlikely <laughs> to run a crypto liquid staking <laughs> token program. Yes, yes. So I'm going That's to the. That's not your uh, next move. <laughs> right. I'm I'm going to. I I couldn't see. I could. I would feel bad not putting that information front and center. To be quite honest, I mean that seems like a pretty big fucking deal not being able to withdraw your money for at least six to nine months um well, see well and, and this is part of actually what like their token is supposed to try to get around was that limitation is it gave people the option to basically sell it to someone else who was willing to wait at a discount in order to effectively get their liquidity earlier if they wanted it. That was like part of its design and what it was intended to do. But unfortunately, a bunch of crypto professionals apparently misunderstood what it was meant to do and used it for a bunch of things it wasn't meant to do. Because the idea was like if you wanted to start staking, didn't have $52,000 and didn't and wanted to leave open the option of exiting in some sense before you were able to withdraw, you could use Lido because you'd be able to exchange the Steeth token through like Uniswap for Ether, for USDC, for whatever, and leave your position even before you could exit from withdrawals. So, but the problem with that is when people started doing that, it made it trade so much less valuable than like regular plain old Ether. Right, right. So, okay, I'm on, I'm on the Lido FAQ now. Uh, what is Lido? Blah, 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 blah. Um, uh, it's okay. right down towards the bottom. Got, got to scroll down a bit. <laughs> okay. Uh, what are the risks of staking with Lido? Is that it? Uh, how much control does any party have over users' funds? No, that's not it. Oh, this is uh, a different FAQ. They've got two different FAQs. Oh. I was on the FAQ in their app. Hmm. 
Okay, okay. If I go down, so Lido Architecture is the first one. And the first thing is, what is Lido? And it says, Lido is a liquid staking solution for ETH backed by industry-leading staking providers. Leaders let users stake their ETH without locking assets or maintaining infrastructure whilst participating in on-chain activities. Lending. Now, they might say that that's uh, the wording to explain it. I disagree. Um, Lido attempts to solve the problems associated with initial ETH staking, liquidity, immovability, and accessibility. Again, they're using words that mean what they're describing, but they're not being up front. This is, I'm, this is, I'm sorry. This is not up front. It needs to literally say there is no mechanism to withdraw your funds from ETH staking. Lido comes in to offer you the Lido coin or token or whatever to take the place of that uh, using uh, liquidity and movability and accessibility is a lot of jargon and fluff uh, that doesn't quite explain to people exactly what's going on here. Yes, that's that's a fair criticism. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and like, <laughs> yeah, I would. OK, if you go down to the Ethereum uh, tab, um, when will I get my first ETH reward? Your first ETH rewards will be illiquid until Ethereum Phase 2 is launched. <laughs> Which is, is that Ethereum 2 Phase 2? Right. Phase 2 of Ethereum 2, which is not called Ethereum 2 anymore, so they just put Ethereum. <laughs> right. Phase... Yeah, this is, again, It's not clear. I'm not okay. saying it's well written. I'm just saying it's there. <laughs> yeah, and again, this is for, the, the only reason you would need this service is if you're someone who doesn't have 50K to throw into crypto, which is uh, obviously probably the vast majority of people, but also the vast majority of that vast majority is probably also not understanding what Lido is saying in this, you know, marketing lingo here. Yeah, that's, that's fair. Um, <laughs> and it's, I'm, I'm like, I'm actually pretty shocked right now. <laughs> this is pretty incredible. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, and all of these large, like, staking as a service providers, which are letting the smaller users potentially access staking, also have their own issues in terms of, like, they're somewhat centralized, right? Like, Coinbase staking, you're giving your coins over to Coinbase and letting Coinbase stake them for you. So Coinbase has your coins and Coinbase can potentially lose your coins. And Lido is taking your coins and giving them to a bunch of other staking as a service providers. And they're the ones who actually have your coins. They're the ones in possession. You're hoping they'll continue to pay you the rewards. And there's certain checks and contracts and things which are supposed to help enforce that. But there's also a long history of cloud mining operations and similar things in proof of work, eventually deciding it's inconvenient to run the business they're claiming, instead deciding to kite user deposits for a while, and then eventually just abscond with the remaining money. And so, like, there's always this concern whenever you're using one of these services is that as crypto likes to say and then completely ignore, not your keys, not your coins. In any of these where you're giving up that amount of control, you're giving up that amount of control they're no longer your coins you have an iou token and hope you're someday going to be able to get your coins back like uh and on the other side an entity like coinbase that's sitting right in u.s jurisdiction and has all these assets potentially becomes an attractive target for regulators or law enforcement if they, if they want to try to exert influence over the ethereum network 
in any way or things like that. And so staking at home is limited only to those who can put up at least $50,000 and ideally $50,000 that they're willing to take a risk of losing the entire thing because there are risks associated with staking somewhere you can unwittingly end up losing your entire stake. And so if you only have $50,000 in ether, you probably shouldn't be staking at home yourself. And so Staking in that way is only available to a few. And those who choose to participate in other forms of staking are giving up some of the control that crypto is supposed to be fundamentally about. Right. And on, on top of that, you know, like, um, you know, I even even if this Ethereum withdrawal phase uh, gets kicked down the curb even further, you know, Ethereum, I, I don't think Ethereum uh, at the Ethereum network level is going to be where someone runs off with your staked crypto. But all those people who lost money with uh, Celsius and Voyager and all those uh, DeFi and CeFi uh, lending companies, crypto lend lending lenders, they were all staking their their coins with, you know, their tokens with these companies. And they were blocked from withdrawing when you know the the rug was pulled out from under them. Um, I again, I, I I'm not speaking specifically for Lido or Lido, whatever they call themselves. I uh, they could be running a completely uh, top of the line operation here. Um, but if the business was to go bust and Lido wasn't able to withdraw the Ethereum uh, eventually and Lido's own token dropped, ostensibly there could be a point where you can't withdraw whatever you staked at all because Lido doesn't have your funds anymore. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's, there's checks and some things they can do to reduce some probability of that type of event. But anytime you're giving up that kind of control – there's some amount of risk of that. And so as an individual user, you are unable to participate in the process of getting the rewards of the chain without giving up that bit of control. And like this is this is one of the arguments against proof of stake is that structurally it tends to result in this kind of thing where the rich get richer is because the entire thing is self-referential because it takes this much to participate in the staking process the block rewards they accumulate to those who already have the most stake and are able to stake and this problem can be exacerbated by things like uh, minor extracted value which is where right now where miners the block proposers are able to pay attention to what transactions are available and front run certain transactions make certain arbitrages and do these other types of transactions to make money off user transactions they can see and this is a very meaningful percentage of like what accounts for minor rewards at this point and in proof of stake if you have someone who's really good at that they will tend to get a larger share of the rewards than the other validators because they end up with more rewards they get more stake they control a larger number of validators and that can become a self-feeding loop where the individuals with the most continue to accumulate the most and end up with a larger and larger proportional share of the total. And so if you are just a regular user or holder of Ether, you are incentivized to find a way to stake it, to somehow participate in that process so you can avoid being effectively diluted out during that process. Now, saying this, there is 
we're talking about how the average user can't participate in staking, but in some ways that's not meaningfully different from mining today in that most regular users of these blockchains do not and cannot really feasibly participate in mining. And even the large mining operations can't really do it independently and have to combine together into these much larger pools. So even the massive industrial scale like warehouses full of miners are still not often big enough to reliably, profitably mine on their own and need to join together and share in a bit of the uh, and share with the responsibilities essentially with a group of other miners and then split the rewards between them to make it work. And so, yes, everyday users are still locked out from trustlessly staking, but they're currently also locked out from receiving the block rewards from mining or anything like that. Right, right. And I think that's that's an important point to make. But also this is where it sort of gets me. Like we're, we're supposed to be, again, celebrating this big change uh, to Ethereum, um, and, you know, again, the, the number one thing I always hear from crypto uh, advocates, regardless of whether if they're retail investor, a.k.a. soon to be bag holder, uh, to, you know, the, the big moneyed uh, elites in the crypto space, the, the 0.01% or whatever, um, I hear that crypto is the great equalizer. It's supposed to to change all of that. And we find out that, like, not only is that not true, it's just like the old money systems and all the ways those old money elites retained their wealth and power. Even inside crypto itself, in like the bubbled crypto space, um, even every facet of that is the same way. Like even the 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 break off uh, in this case, the proof of stake advocates and networks and believers even they are part of that same system where uh you know if you're not an insider with money who can uh throw a lot of money around and take big risks and you know what for those people it's probably much less of a risk too because they like we went through with the uh, Lido case, there's ways to go about that where if you've got the money and you've you can wait a little bit you can play the system and play the game right uh, even in this this bubble, every single like uh, little facet is like that. It's it's you know not what I want to see in uh, what's being called like the new financial system or what did uh, what did uh, what's his face say in that commercial um, uh, banking two point or whatever or the new uh, who who is that again was that Spike was it, uh, talking about the Matt Damon one or no. the uh... It was Didn't Spike um, Lee one. Did yeah, Spike Lee yeah. one too, right? Spike, the Spike Lee commercial. Yes. Um, who was that for? I, I don't even know if they're still. Uh, are they even still a company? Whoever he did that for. Oh, it was for a crypto ATM company, which I feel like you don't even hear about them anymore. <laughs> which company was it? Uh, Coin Cloud. <sighs> do they even still? Uh, I, I haven't heard anything. I, about I don't them. know the answer to that. Um. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, their website's still up. Buy Bitcoin with cash at 4,500 plus locations. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, Bennett, um, I mean, in your estimation, does this really change anything for the crypto space? 
I mean, maybe I guess we'll see uh, new investment opportunities trying to play off this, you know, this new cycle. Um, And that could last for maybe a few months. But um, do you think in the long run and in the public perception and in general how crypto runs, how the crypto space works, do you think this really changes anything? Yes. I think what this is especially going to change is political pressure in view of Bitcoin. Like we saw that White House report on mining recently, which had some pretty pointed criticisms of proof of work. And this is going to demonstrate that it's possible for a community to come together and decide they no longer want to have a proof of work chain, which I think is going to make many of the existing state and state level bills and stuff that look to regulate Bitcoin mining and stuff like that to be much more likely to go forward when it has been made clear that it's essentially a choice of the Bitcoin community and not like a thing by design that's true for cryptocurrencies, which was a belief, even if inaccurate for even still today, where just people see that that is how Bitcoin is. People see that is how Ether is. That's 75% of the crypto market. And so that's how the crypto market is, right? And so this shift where now you're looking at like, Bitcoin is going to be like the last really huge proof of work coin, and that's going to politically make things much more complicated for them. I also hope for Ethereum's sake that being able to move some of their research focus from this, where they've had their supposed best minds working for the last half a decade, to other projects will allow them to get us the dankest shards in the shortest amount of time. So 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 really what we're seeing I guess is that this really is going to put the pressure on Bitcoin or at least Bitcoin as we know it um more so than any real change within how uh the Ethereum community is The Ethereum community itself will stay largely the same except miners will no longer be a part of it no more huge GPU firms in Ethereum it'll be validators, people running their validating nodes, which will potentially change like the power dynamics a little bit in the social contract a little bit for Ethereum, because like you don't have miners voting on a gas limit and how that interacts with like user fees and their incentives and stuff. And you're shifting like the onus of validating blocks and doing that onto like the people who possess the cryptocurrency itself. And so like I said before, that's kind of a self-referential idea, which can cause problems when it comes to like keeping the incentives in a way that makes sense and making sure the tokens are distributed fairly. But it can also be useful when you're trying to get a group of people to remain committed to the same idea because all the participants are kind of bought in on the same idea and to like do a consensus level attack on a proof of stake coin you need to put up stake and like because ethereum has these slashing conditions where you can lose your stake you can end up putting up thousands and thousands, millions and millions of dollars to prepare this and then two blocks later if you get slashed that's all going away it's being drained from your validators as you watch. It'd be kind of like the analogy I've heard for this before. It's like if performing a 51% attack on Bitcoin ran the risk of burning down your ASIC farm, right? Is that like, because you run the risk of losing your stake and when you attack in Bitcoin, you don't really run the risk of losing your machines. You run the risk of devaluing them, but not of losing the physical things. And so the dynamics there can maybe 
help make Ethereum more resilient to certain types of attacks. But I think potentially more than that might might in like a community broader sense help keep all the actors in the Ethereum ecosystem kind of incentivized around the same thing around Ether itself. Whether or not that works in practice or whether we just start to see more like political fracturing and divisiveness is like people try to compete for that, I think is somewhat ambiguous at this point. But like I can I can understand the argument. I can see why someone would believe that with the way it's structured. So it seems like you'll be back on this show uh, <laughs> talking about the new Ethereum network uh, because there's a there's a, a lot that's here and um you know i want to name i want to drop a name drop again those articles so people can go search for them uh your piece the evolution of ethereum 2.0 which really um if, if you're someone who listened to this and feels like you need to visually see the words to better understand what we talked about i totally get that i feel like i'm one of those people sometimes um check that out search for it it's at protos.com and the other main piece we, we really got into uh, by one of your colleagues over at Protos is here's how insiders are getting rich off the Ethereum merge. And that's the piece that really dives into uh, uh, Lido and what's going on uh, with these uh, moneyed interests who are involved with, um, with uh, making a play off of what's happening with the merge and the new Ethereum network. Uh, Bennett Tomlin, co-host of Crypto Critics Corner podcast, head of research over at Protos.com. Uh, thank you so much for joining me and really walking us through that. I know you had to um, uh, step away momentarily from that big Ethereum merger house party you're currently throwing. Uh, <laughs> I can see all the confetti. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, you can uh, hear play... the house music in the background, yes. right? <laughs> right, right. If you're watching on YouTube, play along with me for the podcast listeners. I see all the confetti and <laughs> balloons and yeah. The... <laughs> is that is that a, a, a cake in the shape of the Ethereum logo? Wow, that's of course. incredible. Wow. Uh, it before you go, uh, please take this time to... Uh, Feel free to drop uh, uh, social media handles, website addresses, uh, upcoming articles, uh, podcast episodes, whatever you'd like to promote. The floor is yours. Sounds good. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Bennett Tomlin. Uh, as Matt mentioned, I'm the co-host of Crypto Critics Corner, which you can find on YouTube or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And I've been writing recently for Protoss Media, of course. And you can also find Cass and my other podcast, Innovated Blockchain City, over at Protoss. Damn, one one crypto podcast wasn't enough for you guys. Amazing. Apparently not. We've got <laughs> we've got issues. <laughs> Bennett, thanks again. Have a great uh, great night. You too. So when all your friends ask you in the next days, weeks, months, what the hell happened or what the hell was going on with Ethereum, you'll be able to hopefully explain a good portion of it thanks to my guest, Bennett Tomlin, myself, and this episode of Scam Economy. And to support the show and what I do here, 
be sure to go to patreon.com slash mattbinder. Thank you so much for the support. Without you, this show would not be possible. Your subscriptions help fund more content and help further distribute the content we're already making here. You can also go to youtube.com slash mattbinder and subscribe to the channel and watch the video version of this show there. You can also drop a super chat if you are watching the live premiere of this show or if you're watching the replay, you can drop a super thanks at any time there as well. There's also, of course, the Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash mattbinder, where you can connect your Amazon Prime account to your Twitch account and in turn get a free Twitch Prime subscription from Amazon every month. What does that mean? It means you pay nothing extra Amazon pays one of your favorite creators you subscribe to every month. It really is a win, 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 win. Don't let it go to waste. I'm telling you this in hopes you give me that Twitch Prime subscription. But even if you don't, give it to somebody. Don't let Amazon keep that extra little cut from your Amazon Prime subscription that could be going to a creator you enjoy on Twitch. And of course, following the premiere of this show... I will be going live on both my YouTube and Twitch channels for the Scam Economy call-in post-show. Stick around if you're watching this live. It's it's a good time. Of course, ScamEconomy.com for all the links to the podcast audio-only version of this show. Be sure to leave a review at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you consume this show on. Doing so is a huge help in getting Scam Economy in front of the eyes of new listeners. Reviews help push this show up the podcast charts on whatever platform you leave the review on. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Binder. You can follow the show Scam Economy on Twitter as well at Scam Economy. And with all that said, I'm going to uh, head over to Bennett Tomlins in hopes that he saved me a piece of that Ethereum logo cake that he's serving at his very real, very real Ethereum merge party. So I'll see you all next time on the Scam Economy. (laughs) 